You can uh, grab your Bibles <clears throat> this morning, and uh, everybody's in the pool this morning. Uh, I'm, calling, I'm calling an audible, so pray for me. Uh, the Lord is testing me right now. And I did not put, a, uh, <clears throat> I did not put my notes in the uh, computer so that I wouldn't be tempted to not, not call the audible. <laughs> um, so here's, uh, here's the battle I'm fighting this week, trying to... Um, unpack Acts 5, and it occurs to me, I feel like at some point I keep handing you band-aids, and you keep sticking them on, but you really have a gunshot wound underneath. And these band-aids aren't really, really getting to the necessity of um, what I think is actually useful and helpful to you. And um, forgive me for making assumptions about where you may or may not be in your understanding of the gospel or what it is that uh, we're attempting to do by following the Lord and uh, being part of his people. But I just, I feel like the basic thing needs to be restated before I get to this really more complex thing where I'm trying to explain to you something that is, is unexplainable without this other more necessary thing being treated. And uh, I know that felt really wordy, and it's not a, it's not a disclaimer, it's not a, it's not a caveat, it's just a, this is where I'm at this morning. Uh, I'm sort of flying uh, blind, I have minimal notes. I scribbled down three things to share with you, and, uh, and so it could be really short, and we, we might get out early and hit the buffet. But Either way, um, I believe, as best I can tell, that this is the Holy Spirit's prompting to this is what we need to talk about today. Okay? So let me pray for me <laughs> and for you. Father, I don't uh, pretend to know what you have in store or what you want um, from your word this morning, but I trust that you will bring fruit from it being heard. And... Um, God, I just pray that you would help me to speak um, nothing that uh, would not be of you, but everything that we need. I just pray that you would uh, fill my mouth with uh, your truth this morning, and then fill us with um, your spirit so that we can hear and hold and discern, and um, that you might use it this morning to shape to shape us. Um, God, we need you. We need your word. We need your help. So we love you. And uh, we do this trusting that you will honor this morning um, what we're doing. May be glorified in all that's done and said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me, um, let me at, the, at the very least, catch you up to, to why I had... Um, sort of this main reservation, and um, it's, it's not that you couldn't comprehend the passage. It's that the application of what's here requires us to all be starting from the same starting blocks. And, um, and I don't know that we're all there. And so what I want to do is uh, open to Acts chapter 5. I want to read to you where we're at, and then I want to rewind all the way to the proverbial beginning, into Genesis, and talk about the importance of what's happening 
in this passage. So, um, up to this point, um, thematically, um, what, what we can't miss is that Acts is not a, a book full of do this and not that. It is not a prescriptive book. It is not God saying, when this situation arises, I want you to do this. It is a descriptive book that says, here's what happened. It's a recorded history of the expansion of the church. And um, it's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've seen miracles. We've seen Pentecost. We've seen the Holy Spirit. And he becomes really the, the unseen but constantly present subject in every scene. And uh, we miss this. And we, when we do recognize it, sort of at the forefront of things, we kind of acknowledge, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit, that guy. Or if we even go with that guy, we might go with, oh, that thing, or that power. Or, and, um, and because of this, we, we fundamentally misunderstand what's happening at this juncture. So what's happened is that um, Peter and John have gone into the temple and they've healed this man. And of course, that has... Um, got them some opposition from the political leadership and from the spiritual leadership and the religious leaders. And so, remember, they're um, jailed briefly. They're questioned. They're commanded not to preach in the name. And, um, and then the response to this is that they say, well, we're going to obey God, not man. The, b- the believers pray for boldness. They gather back together as the people of God. And they say, God, fill us with your spirit so we might all the more declare your name through uh, Jesus, and so everything's shaken. And then it says in 32 that they had everything in common, and they have one heart and one soul. And they're doing this, this activity, this physical activity that we all sort of identify as, that's very nice, that's something very churchy. That's what a Christian ought to do. They ought to share things, they ought to give, okay? And while I want you to share things and give, I, I, I need you to see that that's not a, it's not a step-by-step process so that you can have a generous heart. It is the fruit of a generous heart. It is not the steps that need to be taken to acquire a heart of flesh. It is, it is what happens when you have a heart of flesh. And uh, that was the important framework for last week. And then sort of towards the end of chapter 4, we get um, briefly this introduction to the man named Joseph, or Joseph, uh, depending on what translation you're working with. And he's called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. And he's a Levite, a native of Cyprus. And he sells a field that belonged to him, and he brought all the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. And so we go, well, that's a, that's a shining example of a Christian. But what you missed before that, just before that, is that um, it says many who were owners of lands and houses sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet. So why does Luke choose to highlight Barnabas? And we go, I don't know. Maybe he likes his name because it's the son of encouragement. There's, there's more to it than that. Well, just proceed with me now to chapter 5. And I'm going to read through verse 11 this morning. And then I want to try and, if I can, with the Lord's help, Lord help me, get us to understand what's happening and what God wants us to see about our lives. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And he brought only part of it. And he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? 
You've not lied to man, but to God. When, I, excuse me, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose up and they wrapped him and they carried him out and they buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, and they buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. By any stretch, if I had not pushed the reset button, this is a hard passage. We, we got the church fledgling, but somewhat flourishing. We see good things happening. It's full of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're opposing uh, the things they ought to oppose. They're, they're doing great things. And then we have this like hiccup here. And it's not just like a, a little hiccup. It's like a hiccup and someone died. That kind of hiccup. <laughs> okay? Not just someone, two people die. And so we're left with a bunch of um, hard to answer questions. Questions like, were they saved? And if they were saved, doesn't that mean that they were forgiven? And doesn't Jesus' grace cover the fact that they sinned here? And, and what of this thing that they lied to the Holy Spirit? And, and what are we to make of that? And should I avoid that lest I be struck dead? And so, in an attempt to try and answer these sorts of questions that inevitably would, I think, be in your mind, uh, if just given a little bit of time to think about it, you would, you'd want these things answered, but you cannot answer them without properly understanding the framework that's... That, that's, that's fundamental to understanding the passage. So overall, this passage and this juncture and why, why Luke tells the story in this specific way has very little to do with giving. Has, has almost nothing to do with giving. Giving is only the manifestation of something else going on. And really the greater picture is about God. And that sounds like, well, duh. It's in the Bible. Okay? And... Um, but something specific about what was lost, what's being returned, and how we see it now. What, what was forsaken, and what has been returned to a certain, um, a certain stage, a certain era, an expected era, and, and how we see it manifested here. So, um, what I want you to do is flip all the way back, or touch all the way back to Genesis 2. So Acts is, is sort of a, um, it's sort of, if you, if you can see it happening in, in the grand meta-narrative, it's another creation story. It's like a, it's like a second creation story. All, all the same elements are there. And, um, and, and, and when you lose that narrative, you lose the um, amazing nature of, of what you participate in right now. So um, look with me at uh, Genesis 2. And uh, it says that uh, when the, the God had rested on the seventh day, right at the beginning there, and on the seventh day he finished his work, all he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because on it God rested from his work. And then look in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens of earth. They were created in the day that the Lord made them. And then he says, when there was no bush in the field, 
in the land. No small plant of the field had sprung up. The Lord God calls it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. God had created this thing and there, there was no one to steward it. There was no one to do anything with this creation. So then a mist was going up from the land. It was watering the face of the ground. In verse 7, the Lord God formed man from the dust and from the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Stop there. It is... Um, life is not explained by the fact that your physical body is inhabited by oxygen. You see that that is not a sufficient explanation for life. There's something more to what life is than, than physical and biological facts. So the way that Genesis lays this out is that God inhabits man's dead, lifeless, dirt bag thing with his breath, which is also his spirit, his life, his animating force. This is the essence of what it is to be a, a human being, to be animated with, with God's life force. Now, there's other animals and there's other things that are created, but this essentially is a, um, an underlying value to, to what it is to, um, to be one of God's creatures. And um, so there's something that happens in the story just directly after this. And we, we if you're familiar at all with the narrative, right? Sin enters. And uh, what we see is a fellowship between God and his creation fractured. And the intent of God and for his creation is lost. And, um, and if this is all basic information to you, I think that's, that's good. But I wonder what you think the fundamental problem of man is. Is the fundamental problem that you do more bad things than good things and so God can't have you with him? Is, is the fundamental problem that, you know, collectively we belong to Adam and, and he messed it up and so we're all sort of, you know, not part of the right team you have some conception in your mind about why God is necessary and why Jesus is important. The fundamental thing that is lost in some sense in the fall is, is the separation of us from the creator. Though we still have something of God in us, and the question is, what are you doing with that something? The content of your life is a question of, you've been inhabited by God's spirit life. He's given it to you. And what you do with that either fundamentally leads you back to the necessity that I have a creator, he's greater than I am, and I must submit to him. This is the essence of faith. That, that there is something else besides me that, that matters. And uh, notice I said all of that without ever talking about sin. What is sin? Is, sin? is sin just doing bad things? No. It's a, it's a mischaracterization. Sin is anything that, that is viol a violation of God's perfectness. 
his holiness. He's fundamentally perfect in all that he is and all that he has. And because of the nature of who we are and what we do, we miss, we miss that. We can't, we don't have anything in and of ourselves that is holy or right or good. Now, whether you think I'm way out in right field or not, just bear with me for a second. There's two things, two times in our passage where an event occurs and we skip right over it. And I want to point it out to you. The first time is when Ananias lies to Peter and he says, Peter asks him, why did you, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? If you examine the passage, now there's, there's some, de- we don't have every detail. We have enough details to know that at some point, they, Ananias and his wife had decided in their heart. And at that moment, it says, that's, that's when they lied to the Holy Spirit. At the moment, they decided in their heart to do this deed, to, to bring it about, to bring it to pass. And, the, and then so Peter challenges why, why did you do this? And he says, well, it remained unsold. Was it not yours? Blah, blah, blah. And then he says, you've not lied to man, but to God. So though they brought the proceeds in, they laid it at the feet, it seems like everything's happening between people. But really, fundamentally, it's pointing you to the reality that it doesn't matter if you violate somebody else. Uh, let me, before you run with that statement. <laughs> it does matter, but fundamentally, you've not sinned against them, you've sinned against God. You've violated God's holiness. And that's the problem. But here it is. This is actually the part I was trying to get to. When Ananias heard these words, when Jesus says to Satan as he's tempted, he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word. And here's the word. He says, but when he heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. That, that phrase right there. He breathed his last. Do you know what the last thing you will ever do in this physical life is? You'll give it back. You'll try to take a breath, but fundamentally, your lungs only fill with air when your diaphragm contracts. And once you're dead, and you have no more life force, that diaphragm, and that last little bit of air will exit your lungs. And you will give back to God what is his. If you, if you have a King James version of the Bible, it has this phrase, he gave up the ghost. It's, and, and in fact, that's the, there's, it's only used three times in the whole New Testament. Now, it's a euphemism for dying, but it's actually only used specifically in, in the Greek in this phrase three times, twice. Here in this passage, one for Ananias, one for Sapphira, and then once for Herod. And they all have to do with deaths of judgment. Herod's judge, and here Ananias and Sapphira are both judged for lying to the Holy Spirit. And fundamentally, at the end of their lives, they give back to God what is his, as he calls account for what have you done. So, with that maybe being hopefully a helpful groundwork, I want to read to you out of Matthew chapter 25, in a parable that you know, but maybe... We can look at it with fresh eyes this morning. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom in parables. First, in chapter 25, he tells about 
the kingdom with a parable of the virgins, the ten virgins, who uh, some had oil for the lamps, others not. But then I really actually want to look at, in verse 14, the parable of the talents. It would be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and he trusted them with his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who received the five talents went at once, and he traded with them, and he made five talents more. And so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went, and he dug in the ground, and he hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came, and he settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents? Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Have you heard that phrase before? You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you have delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set over you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked, slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more. And whoever and will have an abundance. But even the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless uh, servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And uh, if you're familiar at all with like scripture, you would know those phrases are more than uh, an investment problem, right? He, he's talking fundamentally about a grand scope of what it is to, to steward what God has given you. And so whether you think God has given you much or little is reflected in, in, in your management. And your disposition fundamentally towards the master is reflected in your stewardship. The, the, the man who's given one talent, the servant that's given one talent, thinks his master to be wicked. He hates his master. And thus, he operates in a way that says, I need to get at least mine. He does nothing with it. He just keeps it. He puts it in the bank. And his response is a reflection of how he feels towards God. But the other two who did invest, who did make something of what it is that God has given them, fundamentally love the master. And they want to please him. And so it's, it's, not, um, it's not necessarily about the, uh, the volume of what's returned. Because the person that returned the ten talents and the person that returned um, the, the four talents, um, they both received the same commendation. Well done. Good and faithful servant. So what is it that God 
is after? What is it that he, that, that he wants from us? And then, and then when we look at life in that fashion, we've, we've, we put ourselves in the position of the third servant. What will God ask from me at the end rather than what has God given me and how can I use it to further benefit the master? That sounds, I don't know. Uh, to me, it's like, well, how do, I, uh, how do I apply that? I mean, we tend to look at this parable maybe and, and talk about you know, actual talents like certain abilities or something. And, and certainly that is important. But everybody is given something. There's nobody that has nothing. And that's why you are accountable for what you've been given. This is why you bear responsibility because God's given you enough to know. And um, what's lost in the fall is something that, um, that God promised he would fix. He, he set about to fix it from the moment it was broken. This is the promise that from the seed of the woman that uh, the head of the serpent would be crushed, the curse would be broken, and uh, that we would be able to, to be back with God in his presence. But we lose the fullness of, of his spirit, of his presence with us. And uh, so we're sort of operating on a, a minimal amount of, of what we have. So if I can now, I'm going to try and jump back to Acts 5 and show you what's happening. At the end of chapter 4, we see this, this man Barnabas, and we get some details that seem to be Luke just including innocuous details, but they're not. So, so part of God's um, help for people has been him giving different times and different ways that he, he was with his people so that when he rescued them from Egypt and they were in the wilderness, he had them build a tabernacle so that he might, what? Dwell with them. So he might be with his people. And they were given a bunch of rules about how to approach God. And the reason why he gives them all those rules is not to test them to see if they're good enough to approach him, but so that they remember that the one that is with them is holy. He's holy. He's holy. The thing that separates you from God is not that from time to time you do bad things, but that he's holy. Can you, what's the problem? You're not. God is holy and you are not. Now this is driven home over and over again. They built the, the tabernacle. It's separated. At the crucifixion, we, 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 uh, we understand that the, the veil is torn. That signifies that the way into the presence of God has been made, made clear through Jesus. But that's, there's one better than that. And that happens here. So Barnabas is a, is a Levite. And um, it says that he sells a field and he brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's, there's a fundamental transition that's, that's taking place at the same time the church is birthed. It's this. It's that God is not in the tabernacle. His presence is no longer um, 
set away in the same way that it had always been understood to be. And it was only accessible through uh, blood sacrifice. And it was only um, stewarded by the priests and the Levites. The Levites were commanded not to own any property. So, so what happens? How, how is it that this Levite, Barnabas, is selling a field? He's not supposed to own a field. The reason why is because they weren't obeying the law to remind themselves that God was holy and they were not. And so they had just kind of gone about doing things however they, they felt was best. And so we see here a, a guy who's supposed to be of the, pre, the priestly line, the priestly tribe. They're not supposed to own any because they were supposed to live and be in service of, of um, the temple. So here's Barnabas now doing what he was always supposed to be doing, but now he can do it with the help of God's Spirit. This is, this is the fundamentally missing piece in the way that it wasn't before. See, what's, what's been happening before this is that Pentecost comes, the, 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 the um, people and the disciples, or excuse me, the apostles are all filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled again. And because of this, the result is that people begin to do the things that they should have been doing anyway, not because a new law has been given, but because a new heart has been given. Not because, not because they've been given stricter judgments, but because they've been given the ability to do what they always should have been doing. So here's, what's, here's what breaks and what changes here. That the Holy Spirit has come and he's not outside and confined to a stone tablet that says, be like this. This is what holiness looks like. He's with them, even inside of them, doing the things, helping them obey what they ought to do. So here is this Levite now doing what he always should have and was intended to do. He's stewarding what he, what he was given for the service of God's people. Now he's truly being a priest. So he lays it at the apostles' feet. Now we come to Ananias and Sapphira. lest I extend this long after I should. I just want to say, the problem that they have appears to be the, the resistance of the influence of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're, they're resisting what it is that God has transitioned and made available, and they're obscuring that. And they've, they've lied. And by, if, if God does not judge at this moment, he's muting, he would be muting the, the, the message, God is holy. God is holy. God is holy. The Holy Spirit inside of you and grace for you does not lower the threshold of who God is. <laughs> so <laughs> grace does not lower the threshold of God's holiness though we think we, we tend to because we have access to God because he's paid for our sins we think I can continue in sin I can act how I want God says be holy because I am holy and then he gives you the Holy Spirit so that you might be holy. 
Have I left everyone? Good. Your fundamental problem appears in, at every moment to be the choice to either lean into faith and trust that God is good and he is holy or to resist the witness of that internally and externally and say, I will do as I please. So that when we start grading levels of, of morality or sin, or we think this situation that I'm in, it's not, it's not, it's not addressed in scripture. Or how did, why, is, why does God seem so distant or... Rather than um, me misparaphrasing, let me. This is where I'm going to end. <laughs> In James. So, James is this practical book that makes it really hard to rest in sinfulness and still call yourself a believer. Because he says, if you hear the word and don't do it, you're, you're, you don't have the faith. He says, faith without works is, is dead. If you're not living the life that reflects that you have this heart. He warns against worldliness. And I read some of this last week because he says, what's the problem? What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? He doesn't say what, what keeps you from God or what loses your salvation. He says, your passions are at war within you. Um, so that you understand this. It's not like you like chocolate, but you also love vanilla and you just can't decide which one is good. It's that the Holy Spirit himself is testifying to you what is good and your flesh and the devil is telling you that this is better. And these two passions are warring. And they come out in all these different ways. You desire, but you don't have, and so you murder. So you covet, but you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You're adulterous. Why are you adulterous? Because you belong to God and you love the world. Because he's given you himself, you're betrothed to him. You are his bride, and you love someone else in an adulterous kind of way. I want to find the, the passage. He says, um, 
Do you not know that he yearned? There it is in chapter four. Sorry. You adulterous people, it's right after. I should have just kept reading. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? There's, 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 two, there's two, forgive the poor expression if there's a better way to say this, there's two levels. You, you, you steward God's spirit by the life breath in you right now. But then also there's the giving of the Holy Spirit to those that are in faith. And he, he lives inside you individually and us collectively as the church. Those are Paul's words. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you're being built up as living stones. So here, James asks this rhetorical shot right to the heart. Do you suppose that it's of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit? He cares what you're doing. Why? Because God is holy. He cares what you do with his name over your life. He cares what you do with his spirit in your heart. What Acts chapter 5 fundamentally is doing is showing you that the Holy Spirit is there. That he's, he's, he's not distant anymore. He's been given and he now resides in his church, in his people. And he'll not be lied to. He'll not be thwarted. You will not blaspheme the name of God without reconciliation. So I return you back to the statement I made earlier. Grace does not mean that God has lowered his standards. I'm sorry like, if that seems dumb or basic, but... I just think we get in this place where we think it doesn't matter. (laughs) Here I am. I'm at church. I'm forgiven. And I'll just keep doing whatever it is that I want to do. And all the while, what you're doing is (laughs) if you have the Holy Spirit, you're certainly resisting it. You're certainly muting it. You're certainly quenching it. I mean, at a minimum. But at worst, and probably more likely is that you're resisting the testimony that you, you don't know God at all. Because if you do, you would know that fundamentally he is holy. And you need him because you are not. This changes things. It changes, it changes I'm doing this because I need to be holy. I need to earn holiness from because of God's grace, the, the, sway, the slate has been wiped clean. I'm working from a place of love. How long am I going to go on? I don't know. Give me five minutes, okay? The other parable that I told, that I pointed out last week about the two debts that are forgiven. Jesus says, at the end of the parable, he says, there's a guy with a great big debt and a guy with a small debt. 
And he says, they're both forgiven. Neither one can pay. Which one will, does he say, which one will serve the master? Does he say, which one will try to pay back the debt? He asks the question, who will love the master more? He who is forgiven much loves much, not does much. I, I just think that we're a people that chase legalism and holiness under the pretense of grace. Stop it. <laughs> if you want God to be close to you, know that his Holy Spirit is his closeness. And you have more nearness to God, draw, draw near to him and he will draw near to you by confession that you are holy and I am not and I need you. I can't do enough to earn it. I'm, your obedience to God does not pay back grace. Can I say it that way? Because then grace would be earned and it would no longer be a gift. So this is the fundamental question of life. What separates you from God? Well, he's holy and you're not but he's given you some sense of himself and he's asking at the end of time and certainly at the end of your physical life, he's, he's calling in the debt. I've, I've, I've allowed you to steward life and what have you done with it? Did you, did you operate from a fundamental, I, my account is empty and I got to get as much as I want so that I enjoy my life or from this other place of love of the master? So here's what I have to say. The gospel is not what you need to do. It's what's been done. Okay? And uh, you guys like, you should start with that. Okay? I love you. I want, I want legalism to die an immediate and wretched death in your life. So that when we get to Acts 5 proper next week, that you will not hear, I need to give more, I need to do more, otherwise God's going to strike me dead. Because legalism will lead to secrecy and it leads to hypocrisy. And that's what destroys the unity of the church, which is why God smashed it and eliminated it right away. So, here's what I want to do to finish out this morning. We're going to have communion like we do. We're going to sing a song like we do. Um, I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to give you just um, a, a moment, several moments to allow somebody's voice besides mine, the Holy Spirit, to speak what he wants to in your heart. And you do with that what you must. God, you're good. You've filled us with your life. You've given us um, explicitly your word. You also give us your spirit that we might know what's good. We might see truth. God, help us to um, respond now to what it is that you'd want to show us. We...